The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on A Christmas Carol, the new Robert Zemeckis adaptation of the Charles Dickens classic story. Joining me from Washington, D.C. is Dan Coyce. Hi, Dan. Hey, Dana. How are you? Please identify your your profession at this time. <laughs> I've given up on keeping up with you. You're writing, uh, you're writing for the Washington Post, reviewing movies. You're still writing for Vulture, the New York Magazine culture blog. I write for True Slant. So, all right. So let's get into A Christmas Carol. Actually, I want to talk about the scariness factor. Why don't we just start off with that? Um, do you think that this is a kid's movie for any age of kid? Uh, I, I would say that maybe a kid who enjoys scariness in general. I mean, I feel like parents know whether their kids enjoy scary scenes, even scenes that aren't that scary for grown-ups, whether they enjoy the the feeling of being scared. If you have a kid like over eight or nine who enjoys that feeling, they probably will really like this movie. But at the screening I was at, I don't know what happened with you, but at the screening I was at, there were a lot of whimpering kids, um, smaller children, and there were a lot of parents taking crying kids out into the hall. Right, because the movie, the movie really goes to extremes in order to scare you. It doesn't cut corners on, on any of the, the ghost sequences. Right. Well, so I think we don't really need to summarize the plot of The Christmas Carol, right? Can we safely assume that all of our (laughs) listeners know the story of A Christmas Carol? Yes. This will be the first spoiler special that, in fact, spoils nothing. Yeah, there's not really anything to spoil except what what Zemeckis does with it. But but there is a lot to talk about, I think. I mean, my main feeling going into this movie was just, I don't want to see this. I don't want this movie to exist. This is not something that needs to be re-adapted. You know, just that that weary feeling that Hollywood has completely run out of material and they have to go back and ransack the classics yet again. And so given that my expectations were that low, I was pretty pleased and surprised by this movie. I'm actually sort of feeling good about Robert Zemeckis in the Beowulf, the post-Beowulf era, because I thought Beowulf was a pretty successful literary adaptation, completely unexpectedly, and that he got at something of the sort of pulp comic graphic side of that poem. And uh, and I feel like he got something about A Christmas Carol, to my surprise. It's quite a, a, a literary movie in some ways. It's extremely faithful, and I too went into this movie with a great deal of dread, and I guess um, mine had not only to do with the notion that, oh God, they're adapting A Christmas Carol again, I mean, we already had the Muppet version, Um, but also the sense that it had indeed been turned into a Jim Carrey movie, I mean, the sense from all the ads and the trailers that um, this was going to be, despite the fact that Jim Carrey was a digitally enhanced, created, Scroogey version of Jim Carrey. He was right, emotion, emotion do... captured Jim Carrey, right? Right, he was still going to do Jim Carrey, I mean, and that's what the trailer did its best to convince me of. And happily, uh, for me at least as a viewer, maybe unhappily for some audience members, uh, the trailer is a fraud in the sense that it that Jim Carrey does very little Jim Carrey shtick. Scrooge is not Jim Carrey, he is Scrooge. And the movie is not uh, like a a Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas Eyes version of a classic, but in fact an, a pretty rigorously faithful retelling of the classic with some arbitrary chase sequences thrown in. Yeah, it, it almost seems like instead of trying to jazz up the whole Christmas tale, which would have been a big mistake, Zemeckis just suddenly decides randomly to goose it at, at moments with these you know, CGI chase sequences that I thought could have easily been excised from the movie that were essentially just boring and were obviously meant to insert some kind of excitement. But when he sticks with the story, it's really recognizably the story to the extent that most of the lines of dialogue, I believe, came straight from the book. I don't think there are any lines of dialogue that aren't in the book. I might be wrong in that with maybe one or two lines, but nearly every line of dialogue in the movie is straight out of the book. And I, I, and I agree with you that the for 
for me as a viewer, the chase sequences, there's, you know, there's a long chase with a, 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 a demon-y carriage drawn by um, red-eyed horses, and there's him flying up in the air um, on a on a, I don't even know, like a rocketing ear trumpet. I'm not even sure what that thing was. Um, and there, and those are put in here and there. You're right, as if to sort of goose the movie as opposed to jazzing up every scene. And in the end, I was fine with that. Like the kids in the audience liked those scenes, and I think seemed to view them as uh, as sort of a palate cleanser after the very aggressive spookiness of the ghost scenes. Um, and they and they laughed and they enjoyed them and and seemed to view them as refreshing in light of sort of the gloominess of the rest of the movie. And to my mind, I'd rather have that than a Jim Carreyized version of the entire story. And if that's the trade-off you have to make to make this movie work, I'll take that trade-off. Yeah, there were things that didn't need to happen. For example, the fact that for some reason Scrooge shrunk at the end, and that final scene, which is a, a great, scary, and 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 very sad scene in the book, where he sees these rag pickers going through his clothes, right? Because the lady who takes care of him right. after he dies in the in the, in the future Christmas is going to rip down his bed curtains and try to sell them. And there's this scene where he witnesses that as he does in the story, but for some reason Zemeckis decides to shrink him down, like honey, we shrunk Scrooge, and he's like this little three inch tall Scrooge right. watching it with a with a um, with a tiny monkey voice. voice, right? With a tiny sped up right. voice, and that seemed completely sort of pandering one for the kids kind of thing it added nothing to the moment but but as as you were saying it didn't didn't really take a whole lot away either right so as long as we're talking about Jim Carrey's performance he's not only Scrooge but he also plays all three of the ghosts right he does the voice for for all three of the ghosts in this in this story let's talk about how the ghosts are presented because the visuals on the ghosts are, are kind of interesting I thought they, they all worked pretty well actually but they're weird choices yeah. the ghost of Christmas past is essentially sort of a human candle, right? His, his face is the flame, and his body's the candle. And he's kind right. of, like, goofy. Like, he's like this goofy, kind of gay, voguing candle ghost. It, it's an odd presentation of that of that creature, <laughs> and this is just the visuals. Everything he says, once again, is straight from the story. But, right, didn't you think he belonged in a club somewhere? Yes, uh, he definitely... Um, he's a. Uh, there's certainly nothing in the text to suggest this idea of him... I do like it in the sense of him sort of illuminating, you know, it's a nice visual metaphor for the fact that that ghost illuminates aspects of Scrooge's character that we never would have expected otherwise. I mean, it shows, he shows us and Scrooge him as a once hopeful young man. He shows him as a man who actually once loved a woman. Um, and he shows him as a, as a boy who, you know, was taunted by others in the boarding house where he once lived or in the, excuse me, in the boarding school where he once, uh, went to school and and it was a nice visual choice but yes at times uh sort of visually jarring in the world of this movie the second ghost then also voiced by by jim carrey is very true to what he is in the in the story and not the the way that you often see the middle section you know the ghost of christmas present in in movies he's this big kind of king on top of a huge abundant cornucopia like stack of Christmas presents and, and food and what's really scary about this middle section is that he ages really fast as he does in the book right I mean he starts off as this very bluff and hearty red-headed king in this royal robe and then over the course of the, the few minutes of screen time that he spends with Scrooge he ages into this withered old skeleton of a man and dies and I thought that that middle section was really really eerie and effective yeah and he um, it even includes a section that rarely gets included in a lot of 
adaptations of... I know what you're going to say, the allegorical children under his robe, right? Right, ignorance and want, um, who are really scary in this. Um, and cool and interesting, and and they you know they repres- they are presented by the ghost of Christmas Present, who's never called that I think in the in the movie or in the book, but who just is a literal uh, embodiment of this Christmas in the sense that as Christmas ends, he melts away and dies. Um, but they're presented by him as uh, as ignorance and want, a, a small boy with sharp teeth and a you know, a dirty looking little girl who. Um, who then parrot Scrooge's lines back to him. Are there no workhouses? Are there no prisons? Um, in a really kind of creepily effective scene. And that was the first scene in the movie where I sort of forced myself to acknowledge the fact that maybe I actually was sort of enjoying this movie. That maybe this oh, movie was Oh, it took you that long, sort of, huh? Yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, I, there were things that I liked and things that I sort of appreciated up till there, but it was that moment that made me think, gosh, maybe this actually is a good adaptation. Maybe everything I sort of expected about this is is essentially totally wrong. Well, it was just very ambitious to put in those two allegorical children hidden under the robes of Christmas past. The, what are they need and ignorance, ignorance and, want. And, and want? Because it gets at that you know social critique side of Dickens that doesn't necessarily make it into the more cozy, nostalgic Dickens that we often see on screen. Um, right. I liked the movie earlier than that. It actually won me over in those early scenes in The Counting House, partly because of Gary Oldman's character and performance and the wonderful way he was rendered. My favorite actor in the in the motion capture, you know, the best-looking rendering of an actor, I thought, was Gary Oldman, who plays um, Bob Cratchit, Scrooge's employee and the father of Tiny Tim. Mm. And I thought that was a great, great performance, and I was always happy when, when Gary Oldman was on screen. That's interesting. I um, liked his performance, but viewed his um, CGI motion capture character as the most aggressively creepy of all of them, and the one who that sort well, of maybe most... that's why I liked him the most. I thought he looked <laughs> amazing. Oh, I just he was he the one who the, just... he looked a lot like Gary. I'm sorry, we keep talking over each other. Go ahead. Uh, no problem. Um, he looked. He did look like Gary Oldman, but he was the one that sort of most brought to light the uncanny valley problems that every movie like this still has, in that he was a representation of Gary Oldman, but he was just off enough from the real Gary Oldman that he just made me uncomfortable and unhappy to look at him. <laughs> so we had opposite affects when looking upon the motion-captured Gary Oldman. I wonder what right. that says, what kind of a Rorschach test that is. Well, um, let's right, maybe so, talk so about the... You... Oh, I was going to say, let's talk about some other visual aspects of this movie, specifically the 3D, which um, I think we both agreed is yet to become a really effective movie-making tool. I mean, when I walked out of this movie, I didn't feel happy that I had just watched this in 3D. In fact, I, I just felt headachy and semi-nauseous, as I often do after 3D movies. Um, and this one, I think more than many, is sort of a relentless 3D assault on the eye. And there are very few scenes in which there aren't things flying right at your head, um, or there aren't cameras shooting down sewer pipes or up into the sky or... Uh, or doing things that just generally made me wish that I was watching a plain old 2D movie. Well, in general, I would say that about this movie is that, you know, although I respect the um, the the respect that Zemeckis had for the text, he doesn't need to try to impress us so much, whether it's 3D snowflakes, you know, every scene of snow falling, there had to be sort of like three or four planes of snowflakes coming closer and closer to us. I mean, just almost useless. I, I have yet in this new wave of 3D animated movies to see a 3D animated movie that I really thought needed to be in 3D. I don't, I don't get why Coraline right. needed to be in 3D. I certainly don't get why Up needed to be, although it, it looked great and it used it more subtly. But... 
I certainly don't need this kind of House of Wax style 3D that this movie sometimes engaged in, where somebody's thrusting something at your face, or a beggar is begging a coin from Scrooge and his hand has to come shooting into the front front plane of the camera. I, I find it show-offy and distracting. Yeah, and it, and it, and I mean, even beyond that, sort of physically uncomfortable in the sense that when I walk out of a 3D movie, um, I'm I actually have a hard time navigating uh, the 3D world. <laughs> You know, it, not in a pleasant way, in a way that makes me feel as though my brains have been scrambled a little bit. Right. It's like altered consciousness, but but not in a good way. Apparently, this is right. a big problem with 3D. There was a piece on, in, in Slate about this, that there's just some kind of optical effect that 3D viewing, that turning a 2D space into 3D does to your head that makes it feel really bad and makes you nauseous. And th- they've been trying to fix this. But essentially, 3D is, has to sort of limp forward with this with this problem that's just built into the human eye. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, Audible.com, which, Dan, as you know, is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks. And uh, Slate has a great deal with Audible where if podcast listeners want to sign up through our website, which is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler, you can get a free audiobook, which you get to keep even if you decide not to stick with your membership. But believe me, you will, especially when you have the chance to listen to A Christmas Carol read by not just Basil Rathbone, if you choose for the old Sherlock Holmes, cinematic Sherlock Holmes, to read you A Christmas Carol, or you can choose Paul Schofield, the uh, Shakespearean actor. We listened to some clips of, of both before starting the taping, and they both sound great. The Basil Rathbone actually sounds a little bit crackly, like it was an old recording maybe made back in the 60s or something. So that seems like a nice way to sit by the fire and get your, your Christmas Carol. We should mention, though, that it's a pretty long story. I was surprised. I went back to reread the story before seeing this movie, and I still haven't made it all the way through. It's sort of like a novella. It's pretty dense. One Christmas Eve when I was uh, like maybe 11 or 12 when my family, my mom had the bright idea that we should all sit in front of the fireplace on Christmas Eve and read a Christmas or a Christmas carol all together. And um, like three hours later, we realized this was going to take forever and we just gave up and ate Christmas cookies instead. <laughs> Scrap the Christmas spirit. Yes. You should have stuck with the night before Christmas, right? Twas the night before Christmas. Nice and short. Right. Gets the job done. Right. But, I mean, that said, I, I love this story. I mean, I should just mention that I absolutely love this story, and part of the reason I felt so protective about it is that, I mean, this story is really up there for me with, you know, any great children's story in terms of just the, the beautiful construction of the narrative and how, how incredibly scary it does get toward the end and, and just how moving it is when he, you know, however many times you've seen it, there's just something so great about that moment where Scrooge wakes up and it's Christmas morning and, and he's alive. And I thought this movie handled that really well. But do you want to talk about the last ghost? We haven't gotten to the, uh, the ghost of Christmas future. I yet. totally do. Because one of the funniest things about this movie to me is the credit, the ghost of Christmas yet to come played by Jim Carrey as as I recall, The Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come has no lines, no facial expressions, and does not do anything other than point a horrible It's basically finger. the Grim Reaper, yeah. right. He's, right. He's he, the Grim Reaper with a bony finger. Right. He's a shadow for most of uh, the movie. He's, uh, in, in every scene in which The Ghost of Christmas Future appears, he's Scrooge's shadow, in fact. It, it, there's a very nice effect that's created in which Scrooge's shadow elongates and widens and, and turns into this Grim Reaper-esque form. And Scrooge communicates with that shadow, but the shadow does not talk back. And um, it's very creepy and very nicely done. And um, and he takes Scrooge on a tour of his Christmas yet to come through uh, to the rag pickers, as you mentioned, and um, to eventually his own grave after the after a long and arduous chase sequence. But um, but I love the idea that Jim Carrey, apparently, I guess, had it in his contract that he had to be credited as playing that part. And maybe he did go into the studio one day and, and point his finger 
at something. Point, point at stuff. And 75 motion capture ping pong balls were attached to his finger, and they captured that, and, and that performance lives on in A Christmas Carol. But, you know, the, the final scene where the ghost of Christmas future takes him to his own grave was, I think, the, the classic example of Robert Zemeckis kind of over-correcting for a modern audience and worrying too much about uh-huh. making it scary. Because, for God's sake, seeing your own gravestone with the date of the, you know, finding out the date that you died, that is sufficiently scary. We don't need to make the the grave get really deep through 3D effects and have there be like a burning flame at the bottom and you know have him almost fall into this right. as if he's falling down into hell or something i mean it just it just really takes the story to places that it doesn't need to go and looking at your own grave would have done it just fine for me yeah i mean that's certainly that's one of like the great uh terrifying life-changing moments um in sort of the archetypal story, the archetypical stories that we know, and and to goose it up that much maybe is unnecessary. Well, because what's scary about seeing your own grave is not that you're going to fall into some deep flaming hole while red, white horses chase you. It's that you're going to be dead. That's all you need. Right. Right. (laughs) What's terrifying about the future are not demon horses. It's reality. Right. And and just the the idea of your own existence coming to an end, which is what's so profound about the vision Scrooge has at the end of that story. Right. So uh, nice work, Robert Zemeckis. I mean, I I guess it's I guess what I appreciate most about Robert Zemeckis in this movie is not really most of the directing he did, but most of the decisions he made, Um, which is to say the idea of this movie was insulting, I think, to both of us. But but what we ended up liking the most about it were the ideas of the movie, which is to say that Robert Zemeckis took the story mostly straight, that he allowed, for the most part, um, the language of Dickens and the storytelling of Dickens to do its work, and that only occasionally did he feel the need to Zemeckis it up, and never did he feel the need to Jim Carrey it up, which was probably my number one worry going into this. I, rem- I mean, just I remember two years ago when this was announced, the idea of Jim Carrey playing every character in A Christmas Carol just made me want to kill myself. Um, but that, in the end, was about the least objectionable aspect of this movie. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a godsend. It actually made me think of the beasts and where the wild things are, which I love the beasts, but I know you like the movie more than I did. We we spoiled that one as well. Mm-hmm. But it was that same sort of feeling of gee, you know, they they didn't turn it into a um, Madagascar style, you know, pop culture riff kind of crazy Jim Carrey, Robin Williams bullshit thing right i mean they actually did respect the text and leave the creatures kind of quiet and unto themselves and so maybe that's the new fashion now in animation maybe we've had enough of those years of you know robert robin williams is the the genie in aladdin and not every animated character is going to have to you know riff on topics ripped from the headlines or whatever which would be quite a relief even if the i mean the movies may be uneven but i will say that if we are leaving the era of shrek and entering the era of where the wild things are and children's movies children's adaptations i'll be so happy so yeah i agree with you dan i mean the betrayal could have could have gotten much worse and i'd be happy to to go down this animation road but i will say that if people really feel the need to have the christmas carol story retold to them this holiday season i still say they should go back to the 1951 was it the alistair sim christmas carol the classic black and white british version that's on tv almost every christmas eve at midnight that's just a, a fantastic version of the of the movie of the story I myself would recommend um, The Muppet Christmas Carol uh, with Michael Caine actually doing a very serviceable Scrooge, but more importantly, uh, the ghost of Jacob Marley is replaced by two ghosts, Jacob and Robert Marley, played by Statler and Waldorf. (laughs) Excellent. I've never seen The Muppet Christmas Carol. Was it a made-for-TV or was it a feature film? 
It was made for TV, but has been released on DVD. Oh, excellent. All right, that's definitely getting rented this, this holiday season. Okay, well, Dan, thanks so much for joining me for this Slate Spoiler Special. Thanks, Dana. And please come back soon. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.